0: I cut out this cartoon from our Sunday paper. The strip was Rhymes with Oranges. Um, It's often a little quirky, this strip, and the title of the cartoon was As Medicine Advances. And in the first scene of the cartoon, it's the image of a patient in a doctor's office and they're wearing that little paper gown that lets you know that you're not in charge here. Someone else is. And the doctor is obviously reading the results. You know, they have a clipboard in front of them and they're reading the results from the tests that have been done and the little bubble from the doctor says, this MRI confirms it. Your head is full of dumb and repetitive thoughts. (laughs) Well, I think meditation confirms it too, doesn't it? Because if we stop and begin to pay attention to what's going on in our mind... As Howie talked about the other night in his talk on Papancha, you'll see there's just this constant stream of chatter, of words, of commenting, of narrating, of describing, of explaining, of um, remembering, of planning. Everything around our experience, this narration is always with us. The problem often, though, with this tendency that many of us have is that this inner voice is often, in fact usually, not just neutral. It's not just calmly and pleasantly describing what's happening. It has an edge to it. It is often the voice of our inner critic, and it's always doing this comparing, this judging, this evaluating how I'm doing, what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing, what are they doing, what should I do next, what's happening now, is this okay? This is a lot our inner experience. And some time ago, because I was interested in this theme of the inner critic, I read this book that was very helpful in this area by this man named Byron Brown, who is a student um, of A.H. Almas, who runs the Ridwan School located in the East Bay here in the Bay Area. Um, the book is called Soul Without Shame, and this is what he says about this inner critic. Judgment is a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, it is second nature to you, so close to you that it is hard even to become aware of its existence. However, there is good reason to isolate this part of your inner process self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. And for many of us, this is a huge part of the work we do here on our meditation retreats and can be the work of our lives to really begin to heal this wounded place in ourselves that keeps telling us this story that we're not okay, that we're not good enough. And as we turn our attention to our inner experience, it becomes so obvious that we need to begin to heal this voice, to to actually integrate it in a way so it's not so dominating of our inner experience. A huge part of this process is the practice of acceptance. And it's in all its different flavors and variations, of course, beginning with acceptance of ourselves, acceptance of our experience, acceptance of who we are, and acceptance of others, acceptance of our body, of our minds, of our emotions, and even of our stories, of our history, of our conditioning. This tendency to be critical, to be negative, to be to, to um, obsess about a sense of diminishment is really very common in uh, this culture. In my own life, I see it in myself. I've had to work with it a lot, in speaking with friends, and of course doing this work uh, that we're doing here. I see it in so many people. If not almost everyone I speak to has it to some degree or another, has a difficulty or struggle with this <laughs> voice of the judge so working with it becomes an imperative it really because it's such a barrier to our sense of well-being to our sense of completeness so many of you um, are working with this at different times either on this retreat or in other places and really very important that we take this time to work on this issue because I feel that we need to recognize that this is not some kind of psychological aberration that only I have, or only one of you has. It's really very common and central to the whole uh, object of what we're doing here, because what we're trying to cultivate here is this sense of faith and trust and well-being and wholeness and completion. And if we give too much strength, too much power to the judge, that work can never be developed, can never be brought to any depth or any profundity because of the limitation of this voice. So really not to see this as something that you need to kind of get out of the way that's just this minor impediment to the real work of meditation. Working with this voice of the judge, this inner critic, Is central to who we take ourselves to be, who we are in our spiritual journey. There's this cliched line, but I think it, like all the ones that survive, it has such truth in it. You have to be somebody before you can be nobody, and it's really referring to the fact that we have to have um, a a fairly uh, strong sense of a healthy sense of self. An integrated sense of self before we can open to the truths of not-self, of impermanence, and the depths of those teachings. It has to come from this place of understanding and integrity. So many of us spend a lot of our years of practice, a lot of years of practice working on this issue. It can be many years that this is a theme throughout our lives and definitely throughout our intensive retreat practice that we, this, this painful issue comes up. And for us to fully develop in wisdom and compassion these qualities that we're so evaluating here on the retreat, we see how important it is to do this kind of work. The Buddha himself said, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. Really quite a bold and amazing statement that we need to take to heart that he felt this way and that we too can feel this way. But in our meditation practice, as we sit down and quieten and get in touch with what's what's up for us, what's present for us, what we often see are all of those old habit patterns of mind and deed and action. We see so clearly the ways we learnt to be self-critical, all the different ways the message came in from our peers our schooling, from our family dynamics, from teachers, and definitely the culture as a whole can, can give us this message. And as we, we took this in at all the different stages of our development, we internalize it. We actually begin to believe it. We take in this message that we're not good enough, and different ones of us will take it up in, in certain areas and perhaps not others, but in areas like how we look, what our bodies are like, our intellectual capacities, our musical ability, our athletic prowess, whatever it might be, so many different ways we've, we've been told, we've learnt, we've internalised this message that we're not okay. And we can even take it to the extent where we feel it's actually really appropriate that we be critical of ourselves, that that's a normal way of relating to ourselves. You know, It's like you should be harsh and mean to yourself. That's the only way you're really alert and awake to what life is really like or what you're really like. Sometimes even to the extent that we can feel that we're bad in some deep, innate way, really painful message to have internalized like anything that we work with in our practice, the beginning part of this healing this process is acknowledging that it's there, whatever it is, whatever way this message is coming through to us. We need to acknowledge, recognize the form it's taking, the strength of it, and see, start to understand some of the um, ways in which this message became formed. Because unless we have some understanding, the habits are so strong, they'll just persist. But really beginning to untangle the knot, to see how it is actually a belief system that we've internalized from messages from outside that aren't, don't have any real relevance to who we are as a human being. Really important to begin to see this, to acknowledge it, to accept it, to actually become friends with this story, um, to, to not give it the power. When, when, it, when we push it away or try to resist it or suppress it, it actually gives it more power over us. So this turning towards, this really acknowledging the ways perhaps we've been wounded or hurt, the ways we've diminished ourselves, beginning to understand the process, the conditioning that's happened there is the, the way to begin to unravel this conditioning I've seen actually um, a few newspaper articles recently about this whole movement that's taking place of ways in which people are kind of uh, reclaiming their wounded child and in a way that they just reveal it to the world and through that it's not so charged anymore. It's it's a whole movement called Mortified. Has anyone heard of it? And what this, this guy started it because he said he um, came across some old love letters from his teen years, and just in reading them through, feeling the, the angst and the power and the, 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 the rage and the lust and the fear and the dread and everything that was contained in that, and how shameful it was to see that, you know, that that was who he was at that point. But really seeing that, there's a power in just opening it up and saying yes, that's who I am, that's who I was, and not hiding that away. And so he started reading these letters to his friends, and it started this whole movement where people get up on stage. Maybe we could do this at the end of the retreat as part of our process. Imagine reading your teenage diary to a whole group with all of the, you know, confessions that you had in there about crushes and Hatreds and failures that, that were so alive, you know, I, I just I couldn't I re, I listened to some they, it's people go on stage They write it out. There's a book that's been published it's, it's just a great idea to sort of say and photos, you know, they're like yearbook photos with the glasses and the hair and the, Everything and it's just when you reveal yourself in that way It doesn't have the same power because it's not a hidden part of yourself there's one one line I got from it. This is a guy you know, these are all people's diaries, so they're real they have to be true. You can't make it up like thinking back. It's all true. He's from his diary reading. She wants it. I want to give it to her. But what is it? <laughs> just, you know, that kind of stuff. Or just these little confessions. This is my diary. I wish it were a journal, but not it's a diary. <laughs> it meant so much when you were 13. but So really just <laughs> reclaiming, they call it reclaiming the inner dweeb, you know, <laughs> just who we were as a child or a teenager. And then it doesn't have that same power over us. In this same vein, I turn to one of my favorite current uh, philosopher humorous writers, who I think it's a sign of my immaturity that I still find him incredibly funny, as Dave Barry. And I just happened to read this the other day. I had a book of his greatest hits that I was filling in some time reading and I just came across this. And I I was laughing so much when I read it, I had to read it again to Guy so I wouldn't laugh too much when I was reading it tonight. So this is the scenario. Dave Barry, for those of you who don't know, is just a humorist and his humor relies on exaggeration. And it's the story of his, I guess, he's playing Little League. What age is that? 10, 12, I don't know what age, Little League. Baseball. And he's really skinny. And he's playing baseball. And here's his story. I was in deep right field, of course, which is the worst place to be in baseball. It means you're the worst player. And there were two out in the bottom of the last inning with a tying run on base. And Jerry Sinnett who had a much larger chest, who who had already began to shave, was at bat. As I stood there waiting for the pitch, I dreamed a dream that millions of other kids have dreamed, that someday I would grow up and I wouldn't have to be in Little League anymore. (laughs) In the interim, my feelings could best be summarized by the statement, oh please, 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 God, don't let Jerry Sinnott hit the ball to me. And, of course, God, who, as you know, has a terrific sense of humor, had Jerry Sinnett hit the ball to me. Here's what happened in the next few seconds. Outside of my body, hundreds of spectators, thousands of spectators, arrived in the ball field at that very instant in chartered buses from distant cities <laughs> to see if I would catch the ball. Inside my body, my brain cells hastily met and came up with a plan of action, which they announced to the rest of the body parts. Listen up, everybody, they shouted. We're going to miss the ball. Let's get cracking. <laughs> Instantly, my entire body sprang into action like a complex, sophisticated machine being operated by earthworms. <laughs> the command flashed down from motor control to my legs. Get ready to run. And soon the excited reply flashed back, which leg first? (laughs) Before motor control could issue a ruling, an urgent message came in from Vision Vision Central reporting that the ball had already gone by. (laughs) In fact, was now a good 30 to 40 yards behind my body, rolling into the infield of the adjacent adjacent game. Motor control, reacting quickly to this surprising new input handled the pressure coolly and decisively, snapping out the command, okay, we're going to fall down, (laughs) and my body lunged violently sideways in the direction opposite to which the ball had passed a full two seconds earlier, flopping onto the ground like some pathetic spawning salmon whose central nervous system had been destroyed by toxic waste (laughs) as Jerry Sinnott cruised towards home. Those boyhood memories, I have them often, although I can control them pretty well with medication. (laughs) (laughs) We're hoping to control them even better with meditation. (laughs) But it is this process of opening and accepting. We all have experiences like that, of failure, of incompletion, of embarrassment, where we messed up, where we were uh, unskillful. And our practice is really just beginning to accept that and be okay with it, be all right in that process. I remember in my early retreats going through this and every time these images and memories would come up of things that I had done so unskillfully or cruelly or uh, harming others and definitely things I'd done to harm myself and I would just cringe each time they would come up It'd be, oh, how could I? what was I thinking? What was going on? And gradually, just through opening, just through seeing and acknowledging the universal nature of that, to to get out a little bit of the sense that it was just me, that I was bad, that I was wrong, and to finally get to the place where those thoughts and memories would come up, and all I would feel was compassion for that lost young girl who really was very confused and didn't have any idea of what true happiness was and how to find it. So we open to this process and bring everything in. That beautiful end of the poem that Joseph Goldstein often reads, no part left out is a big part of this practice. I remember somewhere else seeing this interview with someone i didn 't forget the context, but he was a now a successful owner or partner in some dot com enterprise you know he was young, he was intelligent and was making millions you know every day probably I forget the details but someone asked him you know what what would you say to kids you know who look at you and now you 're so excess, so so successful how how to do what you 're doing kind of thing and what he said was I just wish I could tell them how irrelevant high school is. (laughs) When we're in it, it seems so dramatic and so important and we, you know, we worry over everything and we feel lost and we get bullied and we all the cliques that are there that we're not part of. And he said, I was just, you know, totally in that mind state when I'm in high school and now my work is challenging and exciting and I'm successful and all those kinds of things. He said, just that they would know, you know, how little impact that's going to have on your life as an adult. And part of our process here is just really seeing that, of acknowledging the wounds and the pain, and some of them are quite severe. I don't want to diminish that, but just being able to come from this place of maturity that we have today where we're willing to sit with that, to not push it away, to not hide from it, to let it in. The Buddha talked often about this tendency of mind, um, of comparing. In Pali, it's called mana. It's often translated as conceit, but it doesn't, conceit we usually think of as more prideful thoughts. It does mean that, but it also means when we think of as, think of comparing as being less than or also even the same as. And so it includes all the ways we judge ourselves to be better or worse, we judge others to be better or worse, all of the different um, ram- ram- uh, permutations of that, including feeling judged. Often, when we judge others, we 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 tend to feel that they're judging us in return. As I looked into this patterning that seems so deep, I know in myself and uh, in many people that I talk to, I really um, became curious as to why it was so prevalent, why we <clears throat> tended to move in this direction so often in our thought patterns. And I came to see in some reading that I did, some exploration, that it seemed very primal, very animal-like in nature. There's some way, if we look at us as human beings in terms of evolution, real evolution, not the one that some people are trying to teach these days, where, you know, we've existed for tens of thousands if hundreds of thousands of years as in this similar form, that we're not that far removed from our animal ancestors. I mean, we are an animal, basically. We're a mammal. And a basic instinct of animals, in, we're out, when they're out in the wild, not, is when they meet a new organ organism, do, do I eat it, or does it eat me, you know, that fight or flight kind of response. And that's in there some, somewhere within us, that tendency or even necessity to kind of evaluate, judge, am I safe here? In this situation, in this, in this, with this person, am I going to take charge or are they going to take charge? What, what's the dynamic here in our relationship? And, you know, we've gotten much more sophisticated. We've much more culturalized around these interactions. But even like the strength of a handshake, you know, I know for men that's a big thing. And it's still that kind of thing. You know, how strong are you? How vibrant? Uh, and it, it's, it's very deeply wired in there. This very fascinating book I read a while ago by uh, Jared Diamond called Guns, Germs, and Steel traced the evolution of uh, human civilizations and why certain civilizations evolved in particular ways, why some were more successful in some areas and others in other ways, and some didn't develop very much at all in certain areas. And he saw a lot it was to do with resources and just different external conditions that these, these cultures met. But he said that as human beings it wasn't that long ago that we lived in very small tribal systems where we knew everyone that we would come in contact with you know 100 200 people whatever the size was that we could kind of get to know that's how we lived for a long time and if you met anyone outside of that known group that dynamic would happen of you know what what's going to happen here and he he tells the story in Papua New Guinea, there's a whole ritualized set of behaviors where you start telling each other your ancestry so you can determine that you're actually kin and therefore don't need to kill each other. And so you can kind of see how we're not that far removed as civilized as we feel we've become, that that needing to, to figure out where we stand in relationship to others is very much in there. And so that's part of the conditioning to judging and feeling judged uh, in this animal kind of way. And there's a way in which our culture has taken up this whole um, thrust and whole dynamic of being special and different. Really this emphasis on, you know, fashion is obviously the ridiculous example of this, of you know, I sometimes read the fashion papers, even though, as you can tell, I'm still wearing the same kind of clothes I could have been wearing 20 years ago. It's not f- cutting edge at all. But you look at those papers, and you, the pictures they show of models and what is the latest fashion, and my first thought is, that's clothing? You know, just It's just bizarre, because it's got to be different. And that's just one extreme, but it's all throughout our culture of what the latest trends are in colors and in styles. and and home furnishings and everything, and this real emphasis on you know, whatever you wear, what your house looks like, of being different and new and unique. And we can, even if we don't wish to, can find ourselves buying into that. And certainly when we were younger, I think we were all susceptible to that pressure to be unique, to be different, to be special. It's a big part of, of um, what we get taught. And if we're not, then we're mundane, we're boring, we're run-of-the-mill, we're not okay. This message comes through again and again. And of course, with all of the outlets of media that we have available to us, so many ways to compare ourselves. Again, used to be just, you know, our kin and the tribe that we were with. Now you can compare yourself to someone in Manhattan or Rome or Africa or you know, wherever it might be, it's just endless, the images that we have coming through to us, and better or worse, all the time, can be evaluating. Because I was interested in this theme, I did a workshop with the man I mentioned, the author I mentioned earlier, Byron Brown, uh, here at Spirit Rock, actually, around this theme of working with the judge, and he has a whole... um, Uh, understanding of this that I found very helpful, talking about how the judge came into being. And he says things like, as children, we had to learn social norms to get along, to develop a conscience. As this procedure became internalized, it became overactive, overcritical. This voice becomes the judge, the critic of everything we experience. We can come to see now how this voice is not so helpful. It limits us, constr- can controls us, because the basic message of the judge is i'm not good enough, and people won't like me just as I am. You know thing if they really knew what I was like, no one would like me. I have to put on this mask, this persona to be accepted, and the judge follows this message with you'll never change, you haven't got what it takes. So it kind of boxes us into this corner of deficiency. When we're in that vulnerable place, we just don't see any potential. This is a quote from, from the book. The judge is a conscience that helps you distinguish right from wrong. It is a motivator to push and persuade you to act in your life. It is a guard that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior, It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It is a guide that provides direction as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. And last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who you think you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you were not taught while growing up was how to discover the true source of these functions in yourself. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do that are recognized as existing in you. When you were a young child, it was important that parents or responsible adults were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judge. You may not be happy with the way it performs these important functions, but you are familiar with your judge and you know that it is dependable and will always be there for you. Lest we forget, The judge is not bad or evil or even useless. None of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. Our society would not be as civilized as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need a judge until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience inside ourselves. In the meantime, the judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is also mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive. It does a poor job of supporting the life of the spirit. It really lays out the uh, genesis of this voice and then the necessity of us working with and freeing ourselves of this inner critic, because of the limiting way it it controls our experience and our capacities. In this workshop that I did, one of the interesting things that Byron Brown uh, had us do was an exercise where we had to ask the question, what is right about judging? We did this in the form of a dyad where you have a repeating question and you get asked that same question over and over again until it drives you a little crazy. But it's a really good way of getting through the layers of beliefs. So to ask yourself the question, if this is a pattern for you, what's right about judging? Because any the, anytime there's a habit that's been formed, a psychological habit particularly, we need to recognize that there is a reason for its strength, that there has been some way in which that voice has served us in the past. It's there out of the the causes and conditions that Byron Brown mentioned in that piece, that it it protected us, it it served us, it it, um, guided us in some way. And there's some hook in the present moment that still exists for us, some way in which Listening to that judge serves us in some way, has even an amount of pleasure in it. Now, if you put those two together, the critic, the judge, it doesn't seem pleasant. But just like I was talking about the other night, how we really don't know what true happiness is, there are ways in which that voice has some satisfaction in it us. And we need to ferret out what that belief system is that's being fed by it that pleases us in some way. So just to, to look into this question for yourself. The judge, if, we, if that voice is active, then we feel we know what's right. It's like the voice of wisdom. You know, I'm right and they're wrong. I talked about that last night. It can feel it can give us a sense of safety or control, you know that there's this kind of watchdog there that's going to leap out and go, no, no, don't do that, don't say that, don't go there, don't feel that, don't open to that, and so we feel we can stay out of trouble if that judge is active. So we keep perpetuating it. We keep listening to it. When we judge others negatively, you know, the obvious one is we feel superior. We lessen them, we increase our sense of self-worth. We don't have to look at the places where we feel a lack, where we feel diminished. As we point to the flaws of others, we don't need to look back at our own sense of inadequacy. And we can separate. I'm not like them. It gives us that feeling again of, of power. An interesting Um, functioning of the judge is when we judge others as better than us. And again, it's kind of curious, but I really encourage you, if this is a pattern for you, to look at why that might be satisfying for you, what part of you that is actually feeding. For me, I know when I judge others as better, out of that sense of diminishment, I can hide. I don't have to step forward and expose myself, say something that might be, you know, ridiculed or not accepted, something that mightn't be the wisest thing. So in that hiding, there's a sense of safety. We can often have feelings of envy or, or jealousy, and this judging of others as better than can, can support those and can actually feed that, and that can feel satisfying just in that judging ourselves negatively. You know, Groucho Marx, his famous line, I wouldn't want to belong to a club that would have me as a member. You know, we can feel like that. It's just pushing things away because when we don't feel we're good enough. It's interesting to see how this message that we're not good enough, even as, you know, when we talk about it in a a, a direct way, why would we want to believe that? even in the way that it's reinforcing this message we've gotten from our teachers, our parents from society, that in and of itself can be satisfying, oh yeah, they're right, I am not good i'm not okay and even though that it's painful on one hand, just that it's it feels like a kind of truth that we're accepting and acknowledging, and there's a, a pleasantness in that, a reinforce it's reinforcing something that we already think we know. We can have the view, if people don't like me, therefore I don't need to like them and I don't need to work on, you know, my skillful communication or my my aversive tendencies or my anger. We can just push them aside. They're not worth it. I don't need to, I'm, you know, I'm, they don't like me, I don't like them. Kind of just cut it all out. what happens with all of these different ways that the judge uh, can manifest for us is it becomes this constant flow, this commenting that I started the talk uh, referring to. And we get so familiar with it, we don't recognize that it's happening. It just becomes our inner landscape, the way things are, the reference point for our experience. And we think that because we're thinking them, they impartial observations. This is just the way things are. I'm thinking it, therefore it's true. Whether it's painful, belittling, cruel, mean, dismissive, it's just the truth. Because we're so used to it, it has become our reality. It has become a kind of truth for us. And so we really need to see that this is just habitual conditioning at work. It's not telling us the truth of anything, it's actually a real distortion of the truth. So we need to use our practice to work with this inner voice, to see it for what it is and the way it it causes us suffering, the way it limits us. A beginning way, a very simple and direct way to work with the judge is just like we do with any other arising. It is just whatever it is. So what is judging? A string of thoughts in the mind, a certain energetic feeling in the body. You know, it can be a kind of pulling away from, or a clamping down. Whatever it is, we can notice that, we can know that. And when judging becomes just a string of words in the mind, it doesn't have the same power over us that it does when it's our inner narration that we totally believe in. And the more we journey on this spiritual path, the more we look to cultivate those values of wisdom and compassion and truth and kindness, the judge stands out in greater and greater contrast to that. And I can really see uh, so many times in our experience, it's like we have this choice, greater and greater wisdom, compassion, kindness, uh, honesty, skillfulness, appropriateness, gentleness, or the judge. Which are you going to choose? And to see how often we choose the judge. We go there for all those reasons I described before, and you probably have many of your own. But to really begin to look at that, because we are making a choice about that movement every time it happens. Guy spoke about intention this morning. It's very subtle. We often won't catch that choice point. But the more we clarify our intention of moving in the direction of goodness and wholesomeness and kindness and skillfulness, the more obvious will become that moment when we go in the direction of criticism and negativity and cruelty. This is Byron Brown again. The only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval and from others and your own judge. As I said, I've worked with this issue a lot of feeling strong experiences of self-judging and criticism came coming up from the beginning of my meditation practice. And it, it came to a particularly vibrant head at one retreat. I took myself off to an intensive metta retreat, the first time I did intensive metta. And it was a six-week retreat, so it wasn't a light thing to undertake. And I had up till that point, really resisted doing intensive metta, you know. Why put myself through that hokey, artificial practice of reading Hallmark cards to myself day in, day out, you know, may your day be bright and full of sunshine and the bluebirds flying and, you know, it just seemed so superficial and insincere that I convinced myself that it wasn't a worthwhile practice to do. But looking a little closer at that belief, I realized that underneath was a great deal of fear coming out of the belief that I had that I couldn't do it, that I couldn't feel meta, that I I couldn't love or accept myself. And so I realized that it actually was an important practice for me to go do. So I did head off to IMS across the other side of the country and... um, began the practice and, you know, it went okay at first, not, not anything great happening, uh, but, you know, I got into the practice, uh, not, nothing that I was, you know, I had my ideal of how it should be and it wasn't anything like that, but it was okay. My concentration was deepening. There was just a kind of okayness about doing the practice, but I could tell there was that niggling voice going, you know, other people would be feeling much more than this. Or, you know, you, you're really not doing it properly. You know, you, you, something's missing. It, well, that would come through. But I would just keep going until one day I went in for an interview with my teacher and described that, you know, it was basically going okay, okay but not really, you know, very warm or glowing or whatever. And he made a, just a small adjustment to my practice and said, why don't you try this? And as I went out, I just heard his voice reverberating in my mind, as I know you can do coming out of interviews. And it, it just loomed larger and larger and larger until I took that one small comment that I later found out because I, you know, he found out what happened. And he said, I didn't mean anything by that, but I took it to being... He had totally given up on me, you know, why don't you just try that and just get her out of the door and, you know, maybe when she comes back something else will have happened. And I just blew this up into he thinks I'm hopeless, he really sees me for who I am, why did I ever think I shouldn't try, this was just a foolish mistake and now here I am on the other side of the country, and I don't have a car, and my house is sublet, and I haven't got anywhere to go, and everyone will know I'm a failure, and you know, all of that exaggerates, like being a teenager again, where everything was just so dramatic, and I was just getting so bereft about my capacity for doing this practice, and it was only two weeks in, I had another month to go of of doing this, and I can remember so clearly this experience of walking down to my usual meditation path down the gravel path to the to the vegetable garden and just with each step reinforcing this view of myself as worthless, as hopeless, as as everyone's gonna know that, you know, this is what I'm really like. Why did I ever think that I could do this? It was so painful. And I got to the start of my path and just was standing there, you know, dejected, just totally miserable. And it was like this, this image came before me that I was on the edge of an abyss. And it was so clear that I could just take this one more step in that direction. And it was very familiar and even comforting to go there because I knew exactly what was there. There was misery, there was self-judgment, there was criticism, there was just kind of wallowing, really wallowing in uh, self-pity and uh, criticism. And I really saw that possibility. And then this other thought came to me, and this is that moment of grace that we never know why it comes, but it came. You know, every time you've gotten this negative about yourself, about your abilities, your capacity to love or be loved, something has brought you out. You know, however long it lasted, hours, days, weeks, however long, at some point you came out, whether there was some internal process of letting go or forgiveness, some external kindness or gesture of of openness, just time itself, you would come out of it. And then I thought, why not just go to there instead of down into the wallowing in the abyss? And I thought, what would it take to do that? To go around or across instead of down? And the obvious answer was I had to accept who I was I had to accept my meta practice as meager as it was for being all I could offer at this time. I had to really be with who I was and just accept that. And I just thought, why not? Because it's painful down there. And what I really saw also is you don't really learn anything down there. It, it feels kind of right that you should be down there. It's part of that self-flagellation. You know, you deserve to be down there in that, that pit of self-pity. But I've never really learned anything down there. It hasn't really changed anything except made it more likely that I'll jump in next time. So I just went across the abyss and began my practice with the attitude of, this is what it looks like. This is all I can do. This is what my heart feels like right now. And it has to be enough because if it isn't, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to keep suffering, and it was such, in some way such a little thing, but for me a huge revelation of the possibility of the choice in that place of do I go with the judge, or do I choose to open and stay present and accept who I am, and so my, my retreat could unfold from there, And it unfolded not in the ways I expected of, you know, boundless love and all this glowing stuff, but in really deep and profound ways because I was willing to accept that moment of this is all I could offer, this is all I had to give. So it's a huge part of this practice is accepting ourselves. And so on retreat, all kinds of memories can come up of things that were done to you and by you and around you, and just being willing to feel them as directly as we can. Acknowledge the hurt or the harm, the forgiveness practice that we did the other day can be helpful, but really letting them in, you know, just like those people in that mortified project. Here I am in all my flaws. You know, this is what my hair looks like. This is what my body looks like. This is what my heart looks like right now. And it has to be okay because if it isn't, we'll keep suffering and we can make that choice and discover more and more the capacity for compassion for ourselves and for others. Another big part of the work with the judge, of course, is accepting others. And we can see how as we create this world based on our perceptions and our own inner judge of ourselves and that sense of diminishment and all the ways in which we judge, we're viewing others through that lens. We're not really seeing them for who they are. We're seeing them through our own conditioning. And just to recognize that, is a huge step in letting go of the tendency to judge others that we can't really know what their inner experience is like. We can't know what's motivating them to be the way they are right now. What sadness, what anger, what fear, what contraction, what joy is going on for the other. And just to open that possibility of not knowing can soften this tendency to judge in a, in a really important and powerful way. You know, many people tell stories of the Dalai Lama, of, of how he just seems to almost in a magical way make people feel accepted and loved. And so people ask him, what is it you do? How is it you, know, you have this capacity to make people feel this way? And he's always a little bemused because he says, I don't do anything in particular. I just look for what's common between us. I look for the shared humanity, and that's what I speak to. That's what I connect with. And so there are all these stories of how he affects people. I have my own personal experience. I've met him a few times, just briefly, not to, to speak, but shake hands or whatever. But when I was living in McLeod Gunge uh, in the early 80s, when I first began my practice, you know, he lived there. And he wasn't as famous then, so he was a little more accessible you could go to places where he was and, you know, be not that far away from him. But one of the events I went to was a big event. It was a big ritual celebration. I don't even remember what it was. Where he was up, you know, they have a big dharma hall, and he sits up on this huge throne, as Tibetan teachers do, and the monks, hundreds and hundreds of monks were arrayed in front of him, and a few poor nuns at the back, unfortunately. (laughs) Then all the lay people you know, at the side, the Tibetans were there, and there, you know, as many as could fit, and then we were all spilling outside, and, you know, I was a Westerner, I was outside of this, so I was just on the outside, but I found a place where I could climb up on some steps, and kind of look in a side window, and be, see the Dalai Lama from the side, so there he was, you know, he has these objects that he's doing, and the chanting's going on, and I was just standing there, you know, this little voice, this little face at a window, kind of looking in, and I would see him turn around and kind of smile and look. And, you know, he'd kind of, what's he looking at? And I'd smile back, but, you know, he can't be looking at me. He's in this middle of this big ceremony. And as part of it, we would all start doing our circumambulation and walk all the way around. and Because these go on for hours, these ceremonies. Spin the prayer wheels, and I'd come back and find my little spot and get up there again. And then after a few minutes, he'd look around again. And he was waving at me <laughs> as I was just looking in this window, you know, this young western woman who he had no relationship with. There he is in the middle of this ceremony and every time that I would come back after a few minutes I'd see him looking around and if he saw me there he would wave. <laughs> it was just so sweet. You know sometimes he wouldn't wave but I'd see him look and he just you know to take in that that I was there it just touched me so much and that capacity of just looking for what we share seeing the vulnerability of the other, the tenderness of the other, allows us to open in a way that's really quite profound and is possible for all of us. It's really important when we work with the judge to bring humor in. That's why I told those stories in the beginning. When we can look at our tendencies in this way, you can really see sometimes you just have to laugh at how ridiculous we can get with this Endless, relentless way we're cruel and mean to ourselves. You know, just, why did you do that? You know, you shouldn't have done that. Or what did you think, you know, that that would work? It, it's, it's so endless and, and, and uh, mean sometimes. You know, we, we see the ways that we're mean to ourselves in a way we'd never be externally to someone else. And to soften around that, to bring some humor in. Um, Jack Kornfield's advice is start to count your judgments and you when you get to 500 or something you really see you've got to let go of something here because it's endless they'll just keep coming but what you can start to see is even as they keep coming if you recognize them they don't have the same power that they do anymore they don't have the same bite or hook another way is just to say thanks very much for your opinion you know, like it was your second grade teacher, but no thanks, I don't need that anymore. To really see what's fueling the judgments, the, 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 all of the movements of wanting and desire and, and inadequacy and restlessness that actually agitate the mind and heart and really bring this to mind. You can feel the contraction. Take that time to feel what it's like when the judge is really strong. The amount of contraction that's in the body to really feel the suffering nature of it is so helpful. It's painful. There's a strength that can come from the judge, and that's, again, part of the satisfaction that we can get. It's like the satisfaction of anger, the strength of anger. But really to be willing to feel a little below that, to see how automatic judging can be, And see the impersonal nature of it. It's arising out of all of these conditions of our life. I was on a retreat again once at IMS and had this pattern of judging that would happen every time I went into the dining hall. You know, I'd see certain things about the way things were done or even just the dining hall itself. was pretty dingy at a certain time in IMS's history, and these patterns of judging would come up, and I would do all everything I just said. You know, I'd feel it in the body. I'd understand why it was there. It was a sense of, you know, expectation or fear or whatever it was, and it didn't stop. It was just like automatic pilot. So what I determined to do was this practice that I'll offer to you, it's, it's, uh, it was really helpful for me. I made the vow that every time I noticed a judging thought, I would add the line, and chipmunks are cute, because at IMS, these little chipmunks run around anywhere, and, you know, if you know a chipmunk, they're the cutest little thing with the three stripes, and the little paws, and the little bright eyes, and they're just as active as anything, and they're very sweet, and just to say whatever it is for you that lights your heart up, you know, that Fifi is cute, or that the horses are beautiful, or the, the night sky is lovely, it just changes the energy, it gives us a different place to put our attention. And that chipmunk practice really worked for me. <laughs> so I offer it to you if it's helpful. The most important thing though is the, the really the determination, the willingness to interest in changing this patterning. As I said, to recognize that we're making choices all the time, to keep affirming this wish that we have, that the meta-practice affirms again and again, that we be happy, that we be contented, that we have ease in our hearts, in our minds. And the more and more we affirm that, the less willing we'll be to make this choice towards negativity, towards diminishment, towards deficiency. The more we see the power of that intention, the more we'll be willing to make that choice that leads us to greater and greater wholeness to greater and greater trust of ourselves to greater and greater integrity to peace and calm so let's just sit together for a moment in the chanting.